Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. Today we're talking about Kapaimahu, a Hawaiian sacred site commemorating four legendary non-binary individuals. I also want to mention before we start the episode that we're recording this at the start of July, but we recorded it with no idea when it's going to be released because we just don't know when we'll be allowed to record together. So we're taking the opportunity to record with Irene. Hello, (laughs) I'm here. (laughs) You may have heard on this podcast recently, but for us, we haven't recorded with for some time. So we're just grabbing any chance we can to produce a podcast. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. We're going to be talking about human sacrifice, historical racism, historical and contemporary queer phobia, and also just generally about the colonization of Hawaii. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. I also just want to mention before we start that I'm going to be saying a lot of Hawaiian words and names in this episode. I've done my best to look up the pronunciation, but I'm probably going to say a bunch of things wrong, and I apologize for that. I also want to mention that the full name of Kapaimahu as it's known today is Napohaku Ola Kapaimahu Akapuni, which translates as the Stones of Life of Kapaimahu and Kapuni. I'll be using the short name Kapaimahu, by which it's also known, just because that's a lot to say in every second sentence. But both are recognized names of the site. Okay. So Kapaimahu is the name of four basalt boulders weighing somewhere between about 7 and 10 tons each, which sit on Waikiki Beach on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. So Oahu is not the biggest island in Hawaii, that's Hawaii, hence the name, but it is the island with the capital Honolulu on it, and Waikiki Beach is in Honolulu. So we're going to start off this episode with the oral tradition that explains the history of these stones and how they came to be on Waikiki Beach, though not specifically where they are because they've moved around a fair bit in the 20th century. Then after that, we'll talk about the 20th century history of the site, so how the stones came to be where they are today, what people have said about them throughout the 20th century, and how that reflects changing attitudes to mahu gender, which is a non-binary native Hawaiian gender. I also should mention that the word for native Hawaiian, which I'm going to be using throughout this episode, is kanaka maoli. Kanaka, so K-A-N-A-K-A. Yeah. Maoli. M-A-O-L-I. Okay. If it helps you think about it, the word maoli is like etymologically related to the word Maori. That's what I thought we know. it might be. I'm going to start off with the Kanaka Maori oral tradition about Kapaimahu. As we know it today, this story comes to us from one main source, which is the 1907 writing of a man named James Harbottle Boyd. We'll talk a bit more about James Boyd later on, but I just wanted to flag that that's the source because I felt like you'd immediately pull me up and say, hey, how do we know this? So according to the oral tradition, sometime before the reign of Oahu's king Kakuhihewa, So he reigned sometime in the late 16th century, probably, so sometime before then, but we don't have exact dates. Four healers arrived in Oahu. They'd travelled either from Tahiti or from Raiatea, which are both islands in what's now called the Society Islands in French Polynesia, which is about 4,000 kilometres south of Hawaii. From a broad historical perspective, Hawaii was originally settled by Polynesian people probably travelling from the Society Islands, and there's a very strong cultural connection between the two areas. The four healers were named Kapaimahu, Kahaloa, Kapuni, and Kinohi. So Kapaimahu refers both to one 
one of the specific healers and the specific stone that is associated with that person, and also to the four stones as a group. All of them were Mahu, which, as I've mentioned, is a non-binary gender, and obviously something that we'll talk a lot more about throughout this episode, (laughs) so I won't say too much now. They stayed in Waikiki for a time. They practiced and taught traditional healing, which is known as La'ao Lapa'ao, and they were generally very well loved and welcomed in Hawaii. Is Mahu gender like normally associated with healing, or do these people just happen to be both Mahu and healers? No, there is an association between Mahu and healing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Mahu is generally associated with kind of a variety of caretaking roles, so like looking after kids, looking after the elderly, healing the sick. But they're also associated with other things as well, like traditional Hawaiian chanting and dancing, traditional associated with naming children okay. and, you know, just a bunch of other things. So they came from these other islands to Hawaii. Yep. So Mahu as a gender is not uh, unique to Hawaii. It's also in other... Yes. It's also in Tahitian culture. Yeah, they also recognize Mahu gender. And there's, throughout Polynesia, there's a bunch of kind of similar genders and obviously I haven't researched every Polynesian culture for this episode but yeah there are a bunch of similar genders known by different names throughout Polynesia and in Tahiti and Hawaii it's known by the same name. I understand that across Polynesia they did used to have like pan-Polynesian meetups and things. You mean like in the like 16th century or whatever? Yeah, I understand that they did used to like travel between Mm. and have like organized meetings with each other. That I don't know about that in any um. detail, but that does make sense. And like I know, like in this episode when I was researching it, I was trying to just find out even like when was Hawaii first settled by mm. these Polynesian peoples coming from Tahiti, and they were kind of like, we don't have an exact date. We just keep finding remains from different times. Like it seems just be kind of a gradual. Yeah. Back and forth. Yeah. Rather than I just like, we got on a boat and sailed and landed on this island and that was it situation. I should mention, just because I looked it up because I was curious, when I was like, how far is 4,000 kilometers? Which is super far. It's super far. Like, Melbourne to like Bali is 4,000 kilometers. Like, it's the entire length of our country. So. It's very far to go on a boat. It is very far to go on a yeah. boat. Yeah. Do they, like, island hop or are their boats good enough and they don't have to worry about that? I think they island hop to a degree, but I think they're perfectly capable of going in the ocean, open ocean and they are. Yeah. Like, there are a lot of big stretches of ocean with just nothing in them. So, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Their boats are just that good. I've been reading about the, like, ancient Greeks mm-hmm. um, hopping so they could get anywhere or logically to Troy. Oh, like, yeah. Because lots of recently come out when we recorded this. <laughs> uh, and their boats sucked and they had to island hop. So, like... Yeah. Right. No, no. Pollination yeah, no, are insanely good at seafaring, yeah. 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 Their, their boats are great. Makes sense, obviously. Yeah. 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 So, eventually it came time for these four healers to return home. They wanted to be remembered after they left, so they asked the people in Oahu to erect these four large boulders to memorialize them, two in the place where they'd lived and two in their favorite spot in the sea where they'd regularly bathed. Um, incidentally, and I just thought this was very cool, um, Hawaiian culture associates different genders with different stones. Hard, dark stones like basalt are seen as male, and soft, white, or porous stones are seen as female. And these stones, I don't know anything about geology, but these stones (laughs) have a combination of those traits. So even the stones themselves. So the stones are like a blend of different types of stones? I don't know. I just know they have both traits that are seen as masculine for stone and traits that are seen as feminine for stone. Or they're just like a random (laughs) geological coincidence. Yeah. It's like a hard, porous piece of basalt or something. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's like a mix of types or just like a type of stone that has both traits. But I mean, it's unsurprising that, like people, you cannot actually divide stones into <laughs> <it's> binary. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Traits. It's true. 
So it doesn't surprise me that there are non-binary blogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thousands of people in Oahu responded to their request to move these stones. They moved four large boulders from an inland quarry onto Waikiki Beach. A human sacrifice was made and buried under one of the stones, along with idols representing the four healers. The healers transferred their mana, which is like their spiritual energy and their healing powers, into the stones and named each of the stones after one of themselves. So each of the stones is associated with one of these four people. After a month of praying and fasting, the four healers departed for good. So for centuries, these stones stayed on Waikiki Beach. As well as being associated with these four healers, they were also used in healing practices. So are all the stones on the beach, even though they wanted some of them to be in one place and some of them to be in the place where they bathed? Yeah, so they were all on Waikiki Beach, but some were closer to the water where they'd bathed and some were further up. But they were all kind of in that waterfront area. Yeah. So they stood on the beach for centuries and they were used in healing practices. So the largest stone, which is called Kinohi, has a hollowed out cavity on its surface, which is stained likely with oils that were used for healing. And they're also associated with the protection of seafarers, both figuratively and literally, because they originally stood opposite a dangerous section of reef and marked that location out. Our first written account of Kapaimahu comes from newspapers in 1905, which recount the supposed discovery of the stones by a man named Archibald Cleghorn. Get it out now if you want to mock that name. <laughs> what I was about to mock was the way that people like rock up on the beach, see something which was like clearly put there, and they're like, I've discovered it. Yeah, my comment was going to be much less useful, which was, is he a southern rooster? I no, was going to ask Scottish, actually. He's Scottish. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, so Archibald was Scottish and he moved to Hawaii in his late teens. For what? Uh, his family moved there for business. In the like 1800s, a lot of European, mostly British and also American businessmen were moving to Hawaii to set up sugar plantations. So Archibald came to Hawaii in his teens. He briefly served as governor of Oahu under Queen Liliuokalani, who was the last queen of Hawaii. And he opposed her overthrow in 1893 when Hawaii was annexed to the United States. Archibald also married Liliuokalani's sister, Princess Likelike. Okay. So just to come back to your comment about, oh, I've discovered this thing. Princess Likelike passed away in 1887. Mm-hmm. And Archibald discovered these stones in 1905. I haven't been able to find a primary source for it, and I traced it back to books that I just couldn't get hold of. But I did read several things that mentioned Likalike, like paying respects to Kapayamahu and leaving flowers there before swimming and those kinds of things. So, like, I don't think Archibald discovered them. I think Archibald was like, oh, yeah, those stones my wife always prays to. Like, I discovered those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Foghorn. Is this really weird to claim to have discovered anything after you've been, like, near them for... So long. Yeah, actually. Yeah. So he married her. Then she died in 1887 or something. 1887, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, 18 years later, he was like, I've discovered these stones on the beach where I have lived for the last two decades. So I'm not sure if Archibald himself claimed to have discovered them because I'm reading it from newspaper articles. And obviously, newspaper articles love to hype up, you know, and say, oh, this new discovery. From what I could gather, they had become a bit buried just because sands shift. Yeah. So there was some excavation in 1905, but, like, it seems to me like they were there, they were visible, and then in 1905, they were like, what if we dug these up? And the newspaper was like, wow, a new discovery. Within living memory of that, they were still being used as a religious site. Yeah. Yeah. By Archibald's own family. Yeah, so they were absolutely not 
forgotten. <laughs> no. So that's his association with them, that he organised or was some way involved in a excavation of these a bit. Yeah. Why he's the guy? Yeah, they were on his property. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, it's two of them were on his property and two of them on adjacent property, rather. After he dug them up, he had them all moved together into one site on his property, apparently because he recognized their cultural significance. So he recognized their cultural significance where they were like specifically chosen to be on sites that were important to these four people and then had them moved. Yeah. I mean, we can guess at Archibald's motives. I'll just tell you the end of his story so we have all the information. Uh, So when he passed away in 1910, he stipulated in his will that Kapayama, who was to stay in a prominent setting where he'd placed them and not to be defaced, and he left his property, which they were now on, to the territory of Hawaii on the condition that it became a public park in memory of his daughter, Kaiulani, who had passed away. Okay, so he actually had them moved in order that they would be on his property and he could do that? Yeah, because two of them were on another person's property. So I think, you know, while obviously there are clear problematic elements with moving somebody else's sacred sites, he did it with the intention of preserving preserving them. Yeah. So I guess what's coming out here is perhaps that Archibald was badly reflected by, like, the newspapers and things of the time, which were, like, determined to portray him as, you know... A discoverer, like a yeah. sort of colonist where he was in fact just there and they were that was important to his family. I mean Archibald was a colonist. Oh yeah, typically. he was a colonist. I'm like I'm not <laughs> denying that, but like the newspapers were portraying him and his motives kind of and like like the framework of what happened mm. in a way that doesn't actually reflect what he was trying to do. Yeah, I think the spin that the newspaper puts on it is not the reality of what was happening in Archibald's Mm. life. Like, the newspaper article, the first one, I can't remember the exact headline, but it refers to them as, in the headline, as relics of a barbarian past. Oh, thanks. Well, (laughs) that gives you an idea of what the newspapers were saying. Yeah, and like, as I mentioned, like, Archibald, for example, supported Queen Lilior Kalani and opposed her overthrow and things like that. So, like, yeah. A colonist, but a relatively well-intentioned guy. I also want to mention before we move on that, according to the newspapers, Archibald also discovered the remains of a human skeleton under one of the stones when it was excavated, and in particular, an intact jawbone, which a doctor and a dentist at the time both identified as belonging to a 17-year-old girl. Can you gender someone by their jawbone? Like, are there, like... (laughs) significant <laughs> sexual differences between jawbones. You may remember our chat in our Christina of Sweden episode where they tried to um, look at Christina's skeleton to determine if they were intersex. Yeah. You cannot determine sex from a skeleton nearly as accurately as anyone would want us to believe. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't determine it from an entire skeleton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah <that's- laughs> Let alone a jawbone. So, no, the answer is no. <laughs> okay. You cannot. And what happened to the remains? I don't actually know. So I believe they were donated to the Bishop Museum, which is in Hawaii on Oahu, but obviously that was a long time ago and the museum apparently doesn't have records that say anything about that. So we don't know. That's no good. It is no good. That's someone's body. That is someone's body, yeah. So James Harbottle Boyd, who we talked about before, was Archibald's son-in-law. Oh, okay. So he was married to Archibald's daughter, Helen Cleghorn. So she was the daughter of Archibald and his first wife, Elizabeth Pauahi Lapeka. So James was born in Hawaii of mixed British and Hawaiian ancestry. 
He served as a diplomat and an advisor to Hawaii's last two monarchs, and he recorded the oral tradition of Kapaimahu in a book called Throm's Hawaiian Annual, which was published in 1907. And the title of the article where he wrote about this was The Wizard Stones of Kapaimahu. Wizard Stones? Yeah, and the name Wizard Stones would persist up until the 90s as the kind of name for this accepted way of referring to Kapaimahu. Um, Is the word wizard one used? Where did he get wizard from? Ah, uh, he just pulled it out of his head. He was just like, this sounds magical, <laughs> it'll do. Well, it's not like a common English translation for something that is fairly normative. No, no, it's not. It's just, and he uses various words okay. throughout this article. He uses wizard, sorcerer, soothsayer. Okay. He just kind of pulls out all his mystical, magical words. The scholar Tara Tuari Morris, who is a Tahitian scholar who's lived in Hawaii and written about Kapaimahu, specifically critiques James Boyd on that point that he uses these words which we as Westerners associate with like fairy tales and stories and stuff to describe what is like a very serious mm-hmm. and important and sacred piece of Hawaiian history. So I just want to say that in mentioning that this is our first written record, and I've also mentioned that this is where we get most of our information on this oral tradition, I don't want to imply that the written record is more legitimate or more important than the hundreds of years of oral record that came before it. It is, however, very influential in how this tradition is talked about today. And as I've mentioned with Wizard, you often see the language that James Boyd chose to use echoed throughout the 20th century. And even when I was just kind of Googling this and reading random online articles, even today you'll see various phrases that are directly lifted, like not necessarily as quotes, but just like directly lifted from his work as what adjectives they use to describe the healers and those kinds of things. On top of that... Since the 1800s, there's been a lot of American Protestant missionaries who were arriving in Hawaii and endeavoring to erase and repress Kanaka Maoli culture. So for a lot of Kanaka Maoli people today, they're turning back to records like James Boyd's writing as the existing records of their culture when other records may have been lost. It's impossible for us to know exactly where James Boyd got the information which he wrote down. Obviously, he is recording a Kanaka Maoli oral tradition, but we don't know specifically who told it to him or how accurately he interpreted it or anything like that. Interestingly, from reading it, I would not have guessed that James Boyd himself had Kanaka Maoli ancestry. He very much writes about it from a distance and using the kind of language that you would expect of a European onlooker. And I don't know whether he saw himself as an Englishman recording the traditions of this other culture or if he saw himself as a Kanaka Maoli person recording his own traditions in language that would be understood in this English language almanac. He's Archibald Cleghorn's son-in-law, so he married Archibald's daughter, but his own parents, from what I remember, both his grandmothers, I think, were Kanaka Maoli. Okay. So both his parents had British and Kanaka Maoli ancestry, and so did he. Yeah. And he was born and grew up in Hawaii. But I really don't know how he understood his identity. yeah, Yeah, we can't really say. We just don't have that information. And obviously that would have really influenced how he wrote about this and how he related to this, but... We just don't know. Yeah. As far as I've read in Kanaka Maoli sources since then, nobody's kind of discredited his retelling as a whole and said, you know, this is just wrong. This is misrepresenting what happened. He has been critiqued, as we talked about, for the language he uses. And also to come back to the human sacrifice that we mentioned, he refers to the person who was sacrificed as, quote, a lovely virtuous chiefess. 
Cheapest. Cheapest, okay. Cheapest, yes. And kind of building off of that, later sources often refer to it as being a young woman, a virgin sacrifice. Do you know anything about who the sacrifice was likely to have been? Well, according to Morris, who I mentioned, who is a Tahitian scholar Mm -hmm. who writes about Hawaii, Hawaii and Tahiti did have traditions of human sacrifice, but they were almost exclusively men. Yeah, okay. So there's not really a tradition of sacrificing young women in Hawaii. So that at least, according to Morris, seems more like a European and English spin on it and a European expectation of what a human sacrifice in Polynesia would be than an actual yeah. reflection of the yeah. reality. I wonder where that trope originated, like how that developed. Because that definitely is the trope. Yeah, yeah. As a young woman, I wonder where that's... I don't know. It's, it's not something that is just imagined in Polynesian culture. It's also something that's imagined in, like, South American cultures. And like yeah. Cultures. But also it comes up in, like, Greek mythology, and I'm trying to remember the one because um, I forget everyone's names in Greek mythology <laughs> who's, like, chained to the rock to be sacrificed to that thing in the sea. I don't know. <laughs> um, Andromeda? Yeah. Is that that you? Yeah. Um, I mean, we and again, like, going back to it, we've just been talking about the Trojan War, the sacrifice of the young woman both starts and sort of ends the war. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So maybe so, this is their I mean, yeah, it may be that, you know, It's like, like a projection of a, like, European cultural idea yeah. onto other people's human sacrifice practices. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that might be what's happening. I think it's just easier for sort of sensationalistic writers to spin pathos out of the idea of a pretty young woman being killed. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's also true. true. Yeah, that's also true. Was it, you may not know this at all, being the human sacrifice, was that like a position of honor? Was that like something done to someone shameful? Like, was that a good thing to be? From what I have gathered, it was not a good thing to be. But like, to be very clear, I don't know much about this. And I've just read like a tiny bit in Morris's okay. writing. Yeah, sure. But yeah, from what I've gathered, it wasn't like an honored position. From what I can gather, it's... Like, it's not at all unrealistic to believe that this jawbone does belong to someone who was sacrificed when these stones were moved as part of that ceremony. But everything else around that is serious. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just wondering if the idea that it was human sacrifice comes from the oral tradition. Or if it, I, like, I know we don't know. Yeah. between this guy's version of this and the oral tradition. <laughs> yeah, and, like, obviously Boyd wrote in 1907, which is two years after the stones were excavated and the jawbone was found. So he already knew that there was a jawbone under that stone and he may have spun this whole human sacrifice story out of his head to explain that jawbone rather than because he'd heard that Mm. that was how it got there. I'm just thinking about how common it is for people to find uh, human remains and say it's human sacrifice. Yeah. 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 Kind of the ritual purposes of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, that, that's very true. That's very true. And, like, there are many other reasons that a person could have been buried under a rock mm. that we don't know. We've been talking about this jawbone. Yeah. How much of the skeleton is recovered? I'm not entirely clear. Okay. Like, various things I read said there were human remains, including an intact jawbone, or there was a skeleton, or there was, like, because most of the information comes from, like, 905 newspapers, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we've had a long chat about the stones and the oral tradition, it's time to talk about queer stuff. Queer stuff. So to move on to the queer stuff, James Boyd's account describes the four healers as, quote, unsexed by nature and adds, 
Their habits coincided with their feminine appearance, although manly in stature and general bearing. So they were feminine in appearance, but manly in stature? Yes. Yes. Okay. And unsexed by nature. And unsexed by nature. Yes. That could be anything. (laughs) (laughs) We will talk more about this. So more recent sources identify them as Mahu, which is a non-binary, kind of like a Mali gender, and also Tahitian gender, as we've mentioned. Hinawongkalu, a modern-day woman who identifies as both a transgender woman and as Mahu, describes Mahu as those of us who embrace both the feminine and masculine traits that are embodied within each and every one of us. Is Mahu a trans-feminine identity then, or is it just this one person you're talking about? That's, is trans-feminine and mahu? That's a very good question. Recent work by non-Kanaka Maoli American scholars definitely focuses on it as a trans-feminine identity and focuses on the fact that mahu are assigned male at birth and I was going to say perform female social roles, but that's not even necessarily true because like there are a lot of social roles specifically connected with mahu and we've talked about like the association with healing and those kinds of things. But those things are perceived as feminine social roles to a, like, white researcher. Mm, Yeah, I mean... (laughs) So I can see kind of, like, projection there. Yeah, Um, I think from a Kanaka Maoli perspective, Mahu is more understood as being in between male and female. Yeah. And, like, you know, obviously Hinawankali, for example, also identifies as a trans woman. So, like, that doesn't mean that someone who is a Mahu is not also a woman. So, interestingly, for this episode, I watched a documentary about Hina Monkali, which is called Kumu Hina, which means teacher Hina. So, she is a teacher of Kanaka Maoli culture, um, and in particular, hula dancing. And in that documentary, it follows the mentoring relationship with her and one of her students who is assigned female at birth, but wants to perform male roles in the hula dance. Okay. So transmasculine rather than transfeminine, but this student and Hina Wonkalu definitely talk about themselves as both being in the middle, that's the phrase they use, and kind of sharing their gender experience in a lot of ways. Okay. Is this student Mahu as well? Uh, the student's a kid who hasn't decided okay. yet from what so I like can gather. Young, yeah, the student's kid. quite young. I couldn't put an exact age, but like early high school. 12. Okay. Yeah. The student's quite young and uses she, her pronouns in the documentary and doesn't identify herself explicitly as Mahu, but she does refer to herself as being in the middle mm-hmm. and having masculine and feminine traits and being the same as Hina Wonkalu. Okay. You know how you said that, like, researchers outside of, like, Kanaka Maoli mm-hmm. people focus on Mahu being assigned male at birth and trans-feminine. Mm-hmm. Are Mahu assigned male at birth, usually? So, from what I can gather, yes, but I do say from what I can gather because it took me a while to be, like, confident to say that. So, Will Roscoe, our old pal. <laughs> he is. <laughs> uh, he's an American anthropologist. If you haven't listened to some of our other episodes about some non-binary indigenous genders he's always there he's a bit of a mixed bag uh, <laughs> i always think of that career as back to bingo card <laughs> scholarly mixed bag he's well-intentioned but he cannot see past the gender and sex binary no matter how much he writes about non-binary people he can just never pull himself out of that let's just talk about Oscar for a second <laughs> 
<laughs> Alright, let's do it, yeah. So he's come up like so often. Yeah. Not just like on this podcast, like but so often when I'm researching things, Will Roscoe is there. Um, <laughs> I think he you... just made it his mission. He was like clearly anytime he heard about a gender thing, he was like, I am here with yeah. my I assist White man, I'm ready. As someone who has read the most of Will Roscoe's work, of yeah. all of us, and for that I apologize to you and thank you for your time. <laughs> Do you think that it's actually reasonable for him to have looked into all of these different cultures because there is a certain amount of overlap? Or do you think that he is not actually, like... He's conflating things. Yeah. Do you think it's it's he's just kind of decided that these are all basically the same thing and he can just kind of invite himself to sit at the table of, like, 50 different cultures? I think that he does put in a lot of effort to understand the culture he's writing about. He usually works with the communities he's writing about and has some level of approval from their okay. elders or their community. Obviously, as I've said, there's a lot of problems with what he says. He's also done a lot of, like, statistical studies where he'll, for example, go and like record all the different non-binary genders that exist in Indigenous American groups and kind of what different traits or social roles they have and compare those. So I think he does kind of think about what are the similarities and what are the differences. He doesn't just walk in and go, oh, the third gender, I know all about this. All right, yeah, I guess that's kind of right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just suspicious at this point. I know that on this podcast we've mostly talked about it in the context of, like, third genders in the Americas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he also does a bunch of work on gender stuff that is, like, not on the Americas at all. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's like, yeah, what's he what's Yeah, he when I was researching Ndinga, who is from Ndongo, yeah, which I is now he came Angola, he was there. And I was like, yeah. Will, what are you doing here? I've been doing um, some research on stuff in like ancient Greece and Rome, and he's also there. And I just kind of like don't really buy that he could do that. <laughs> like, can it's you- also just so weird to me. And like, I trust that it does happen. But like, an academic who, as far as I know, is not queer. I. And I do not want to say this as a definitive statement, but I believe Will Roscoe was gay. Okay, okay. But I think it's definitely worth asking when you come across somebody writing about an experience that isn't their own, especially when they've made that their specialty. Like, why? The unfortunate thing about doing, like, not only, like, queer studies, but in other things like um, Mm. disability studies and so forth, is that you do kind of have to just be, like, expect people's personal information to be fully available in order to make calls for work, which... Like, it's sort of fair enough, but it's also a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Like, I, it's this weird sort of proving your credentials in strange personal ways. Mm, yeah. I found that researching this episode, whenever I came across a scholar, I was Googling them being like, are you Kanakamali? Are you Polynesian? Are you indigenous? Did you just pop up and think this would be fun? Like, and I was yeah. Googling all these scholars to try and figure it out. And like, should we have to do that? Like, I guess... It's important to know what people are bringing to their scholarship, but I also feel weird when I'm trying to dig up. You're like trying to dig up somebody's ethnic background in order to decide whether to trust them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. Mm. Yeah, and obviously, also that like immediately uncovers your own biases in terms of like what information you look out mm. for and yeah, what yeah, you consider to be like yeah proof that someone isn't belonging to a particular ethnic group and so forth. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So you can't just Google them to someone. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I generally just like go and read all the bios I can find, and I find Twitter very good because people, people generally actually put pronouns on Twitter, put it very yeah. specifically on Twitter. But yeah, no, that's also true. Like, we'll- I was going to <laughs> say one more thing, which is like bringing us back on topic, really, which was I think related to Eli's original point about Will Roscoe and potentially conflating a bunch of like gender identities into one third gender category. Mm. And I was going to ask, do you feel to some extent that Outside researchers prioritize the, like, assigned male at birth trans feminine concept of Mahu because that's what they're accustomed to finding in, like, Mm. mainland Native American identities. I don't know. That's an interesting point because, like, we have on this podcast talked before about two different Indigenous American trans feminine identities. It is quite common in Indigenous American cultures to kind of recognize a trans feminine gender. So it may be that Will Roscoe, I should call him Roscoe. (laughs) I was going to say Will and I was like, Bill, good old Bill. Billy. Um, Yeah, it may be that Roscoe kind of went in expecting that and therefore that's what he focused on. I also don't actually know what dates. I think his work on Mahu is much more recent than his work on Indigenous American genders, which would line up with what you're saying. But I'm not 100% sure about that either. It is also interesting more broadly just to think about, like, because we, we hear that so often, like, oh, this reminds me of that thing about gender in this other episode. And mm. that's quite a common thing that historians do with, like, gender and sexuality. Yeah. Like, again, to bring up an ancient Greek example just because that's what I've been reading. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading about, like, scholars trying to theorize about where the ancient Greek pederasty mm-hmm. came from, mm-hmm. and they made comparisons to, like, a society in like Micronesia or something like that that had a pederasty sort of like yeah. age ceremony to be like, maybe that's the same thing. And it's just so interesting and difficult to think about when those are like valid comparisons mm. that might be like validly connected. Yeah, connected or that we can use to understand that one better and when we're just like being like, I am all yeah. gays, it's all the same. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, or, or yeah. Like making one sort of fit the other. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like, I don't have a question or anything like that. I just think it's. Yeah, yeah, and I, that that's definitely a good point, mm. and I do think that that is something we see with American anthropologists in this context, yeah. where they're trying to fit Mahu into the ideas they have of gender, where you are one or the other. And yeah, you, yeah, and also their ideas of like Native American non-binary yeah. genders. Yeah. Um, which are like culturally not connected. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Kanakamali people are Polynesian. Yeah. That's not the same as any mainland Indigenous American cultures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, carry on, I guess. <laughs> so, um, Will Roscoe. That's the words that started this tangent. <laughs> Will Roscoe, why now, Alice? The horrible Roscoe, and we're like, absolutely not! <laughs> um, yeah, so Will Roscoe, for example, describes Mahu as males who preferred the work of women. Art historian Andrea Fisa, who's written a book about various uh, sites in Waikiki, describes them as men who dress and live as women. So, yeah, they are kind of seeing Mahu as this quite straightforward, I guess, trans-feminine role. Mm. Conversely, earlier writing about Mahu, I'm thinking specifically of James Boyd, but I have encountered other examples, and also Kanaka Maoli writing or talking about Mahu, both 
historically and in the modern day, like I've mentioned Hino Wonkalu as an example, more often focus on it as being between two genders. So as I've mentioned, James Boyd refers to Mahu as unsexed by nature. Writing in the 1970s, Mary Kawena Pukui, who is a Kanaka Maoli scholar and educator, tells us that the first Mahu of legend and tradition were evidently physically bisexual persons or hermaphrodites. So interestingly, those are both comments about sex, not gender. Yeah, yeah. In later writing and in all the scholarship I've read, I've never seen anyone kind of go into this fact that these are comments about sex and not gender and the fact that we may be talking about someone who is not in the sex binary, so like intersex people as well as people who are not in the gender binary. But yeah. I think that's an interesting thing to point out and I do have a couple more things to say about that later on, so keep it in mind. So just talking a bit more about Mahu in general, Robert Levi, who's an American anthropologist who did some fieldwork in Tahiti and Hawaii in the 70s, talks a bit about various explanations he heard from Tahitian and Kanakamali people about why somebody might be Mahu. So Levi reports various explanations for why someone might be Mahu. Some people told him that Mahu was simply born that way. Others that it was because their parents and family dressed them in female clothing in childhood, possibly because there were no female children in the family. One informant told him that Mahu had shorter penises and couldn't have sex with women, and therefore they became Mahu. There's a lot to unpack in that final mm, comment. I was about but... to say that about that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack about that whole thing. And that final comment just reminded me again of that comment that Mahu were, like, physically not... In between in some yeah, way. Yeah, intersex. I wonder if there were, like cultures or ethnic groups where intersex traits are more common. I did try to look this up for this episode because I was like, is that what's happening? Isn't this a social explanation for intersex people because perhaps there are more Kamakamahali intersex people? But I could not find that doctor. Okay. I don't know yeah. if it exists. But yeah, I did consider that possibility. I mean, I guess if you're a culture that already has a way for people to be in between genders, your reaction to intersex is different, mm, yeah. To be like, well, you could be this, and then some of them will be like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Western culture, yeah. Where instead, you force that child to to pick be one. In the binary, then they won't do that as much. It's also worth mentioning that Mahu is not the only traditional Kanaka Maoli role for someone to be outside the gender binary. Oh, cool. Tell me more, right? I remember we brought this up in our episode on we were and talking about Zuni people and that was a question you kept being like, but yeah. are we just make were they just making a third box? Yeah. Um, not in this case. No. There are, are more boxes. boxes. <laughs> Maybe five, but several boxes. <laughs> so Mary Kawena Pukui, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. she was a Kanaka Maoli educator and scholar, um, tells us first of all that it was possible for men or women who weren't Mahu to take up tasks that weren't traditionally associated with their gender. Yeah. So any person could perform tasks outside their gender if they were so inclined. Um, sure. Okay. I know. <laughs> it's revolutionary. <laughs> and does that have an impact on their how they're seen in their community and their role, or is it just like, you know, you can you can anyone can do that, yeah. So from what I gathered, Pakui talks about that and then goes on to talk about specific roles that you could take that like have names and Okay. Delineated roles. So because she both comments that, oh, anybody, man or woman, could perform roles outside their gender and then delineate some specific mm-hmm. roles outside the gender binary, I got the impression that it was just like anyone could if they wanted to, but I'm not 100% sure. 
Yeah, so Pukui also mentions two masculine roles for people assigned female at birth. Oh, nice. well, not necessarily masculine roles, but more masculine yeah. roles, let's say. So one is kaula, which Pukui translates as priest prophets. So kaula were identified at birth. Oh. And they fulfilled a role as seers in Kanakamali society. And um, interestingly, Pukui says that some Kala married and had children. Do you know how they were identified at birth? Like, was that, you know, something physical or just like, I don't know how to say, like, just like <laughs> something came up, <laughs> it was time baby. for a Kala to be born. Or like a, an omen or a yeah, time of birth. Something. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but interestingly, the other thing Pakui says, and unfortunately, this is all she says, she has this kind of encyclopedia dictionary of various yeah. kind of Kamali terms, so all the entries are quite short. The other thing she said is that some Kala married and had kids, but some never married and never menstruated. So just to be absolutely sure, had kids with... had Married and had kids, like, in a in a female role, so, like... So, so, so bore kids. Yeah. Okay, just yeah. joking. Yeah, no, like, that was a fair question, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, did they, did they bear their own children? Yeah, though? like, married yeah. as a wife and bore kids. Okay. Like, carried the children. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but she also says that some never menstruated, never married, never had kids. So, once again, that points to the possibility of, like, a physiological difference of being identified yeah. rather not than always. just a gender role, but not always. Yeah. Or it could just be, like... Maybe some of them never menstruate, but some of them just. I feel like I feel like just like once people are gender variant, then a bunch of perceptions come along with that that might not be. Mm, yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah, and I guess even like when we talked about Paulie Murray, who like saw doctors to try and find some evidence that he himself had like internal testes or something. Way. Yeah, yeah, like I guess. We do often understand somebody who is gender variant as you're like looking for physical yeah, differences. Yeah, looking for yeah. a physical explanation. So it may be that that was what ha- is happening here. Yeah, I can sort of see how if they yeah sort of lived a gender variant life, that the outside perception would be they don't menstruate because yeah. that's a sign of womanhood. It could, yeah, it could be that like and again, I'm speculating wildly about something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it could be that like for those people, menstruation was something that they didn't want to talk about. In, yeah, mm. in private because they felt differently about it than people who were living as women. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe you'd be more comfortable talking freely about menstruating with, like, female Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, like, in our culture, like, people don't talk about menstruation. I don't know what the Kanaka Maoli, like, attitude towards talking about menstruation was, was yeah. either. Like, I don't know if that's something people were just having open conversations about or not. The other role that Pukui tells us about is called Kao Wahine, or Wahine Kaua, which translates as battle women. Okay. Um, so, battle women were women who performed masculine roles within armies. Um, okay. So, they traveled with the army, they'd cook for the army, which was a masculine role, and they would fight with the army. Pukui says if necessary, so not entirely clear if they were just a part of the army or if they were, like, there in a supportive role, but if it came to it, they would fight. Do you know if these gender roles are still alive like uh, I mean, Mahu, are they remembered or do people still inhabit them Mahu obviously is as we yeah. mentioned but I don't know about Kawa or Wahine Kawa okay. I'm not sure and Wahine Kawa I would say is less of a gender role and more just of a way for a woman to to be to perform some masculine roles so Pukui also tells us that Wahine Kawa were regarded with the same respect as women who performed traditionally feminine roles and when war was over would return home to marry and raise children and take on okay. traditionally so feminine you tasks s- you say that because it seems to be temporary is that why 
Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, and Pakuri seems to say that they are still seen as women. Okay. As women performing a masculine role rather than as people who are like this is kind of like two, I guess, gender identities for different kinds of women. I guess so. Yeah. So you mentioned at the start of this about you were going to show us a bunch of different boxes people could be in, apart from <laughs> the two, what we got. So, I mean, how much do you think these are distinct hard categories that this society was putting people into and how much is all of this fairly malleable and so forth? I think it varies from category to category. So, like, Carla, for example, are people who are identified at birth mm. and fulfilled that role for their whole life. Wahine Kawa, it seems to be more like, you know, oh, if there's a war and you wanted to, you could go and do this, but it doesn't define your life or, you know, it's not something you're just saying, I am this and I'm committed to this forever now. Surely that's just like a broad social view, though. Surely that can't, like, necessarily reflect what is actually going on within the communities of people who inhabited these worlds. I don't quite understand. I don't know. It just seems a little simplistic to be able to say that, like, yeah, this one definitely was, like, a gender role, but this one wasn't just because this person, like, who wrote these articles seems to think that that's what's generally understood by... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And, like, we... Like, I, I... Apart from it being something that you know, it seems to have been temporary. I, like, I just don't get how we meaningfully distinguish between, well, this thing's a gender role that's separate, but this thing is just something that, like, women did. Yeah, it's no. It's a masculine role, but it's not a gender role. Yeah, yeah, no, I see what you're like, saying. I just don't, yeah. like, really get, get it. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. And, like, we can't know how these people understood mm. the concept of gender, let alone their own genders. So, yeah, yeah probably I have simplified it in saying that, and that's probably not a true statement and i guess especially with the minimal like the minimal information (laughs) that you have about that role it's hard to tell whether it's like this is another feminine gender or this is a term like we have career woman you know yeah you're somebody who like does certain things in their life but it's not it's gendered but it's not a gender yeah Um, and i mean at the end of the day i I think the question at the core of this conversation is what's a gender And we don't know. We've been doing a queer podcast for like three years and we still don't know. Yeah. Do you know, Eli? Like, like, no, but I think, um, yeah, I think it's easy to jump from that to like, I don't think you're doing that, but I see this conversation play out sometimes where we say, well, like men and women, those are definitely real genders, but the rest of these might not be real genders. And Mm. like, let's just step away from that possibly Mm -hmm. immediately. Yep. I guess, yeah, like in delineating some of them as gender roles and some of them as potentially not gender roles, you kind of make assumptions that like Kanaka Mali culture understands gender in the same way that we do in the first place. Mm. Like that that's a meaningful distinction to make there. That's true. I guess it's the same as like when people will say, oh, you know, you can't call an ancient Roman homosexual because they didn't have a concept of homosexuality with the implication that like therefore they were all heterosexual when they didn't have a concept of heterosexuality either. Like, we're kind of coming in with our assumptions that there are men and women and there might be some other things. And yeah, we don't even know. And it's that, like, once you come down to that is, and I've forgotten the word now, but, like, warrior women. Um, Wahine Kawa. Wahine Kawa. Once you come down to that, like, is Wahine Kawa a gender? Like, you make the assumption that 
women is a gender to them in the same way that it is to us already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you've kind of landed on it, this assumption that everyone understands man and woman in the same way, and now we just have to figure out how other people think about these extra things. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, which is a false assumption. It is. Yeah. yeah. I guess the point I'm trying to make is, like, just because you can say, like, oh, this is what a society thinks about this gender that doesn't equate for the variety in lived experiences mm. within that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's another thing. Um, you know, if we compare it to – let's compare this to every society. <laughs> to when we talked about Albanians, one version, mm. how that was, like, not an inherently, quote-unquote, like, different trans, mm. like, gender yeah. to be in, but, like, it definitely included – people who we would understand as trans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I just don't want us to kind of write it off and be like, but those ones are just women. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm like I'm definitely not very educated on this and like I didn't even do any of the research for this episode. <laughs> but I know it is something that like various indigenous peoples have talked about like referring to uh, various Native American, mm. for example, the gender roles as being like non-binary is completely inaccurate because you're presuming that we then had the binary. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm, that's true, yeah. yeah. And I have referred to Mahu as non-binary throughout this episode. Um, um, and, you know, like I'm not pretending that I've just brought like a very nuanced representation mm-hmm. of what's going on in those sorts of discussions. I don't I don't know. Yeah, but I'm yeah. I'm aware that like we're probably bringing a lot of assumptions yeah. to us and so are all the people whose work we're talking about who are not of this culture, so. Yeah, yeah, no, that, uh, that, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. When it comes down to it, like in a society with more than two genders, no gender is binary, right? <laughs> that's a good point. Yes, um, but also I think there's a strong point Eli made there about just our general our general tendency to try and understand categories to the yeah. detriment of like variety and experience. Yeah, like we try and understand what Wahinakawa is with such little information when it could have been a different, you know, a different experience to a variety of Of people. people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so we can't sort of make that with this little information, that definitive statement, oh, that's not a gender role. That is a gender role. That's a gender. Like, we don't (laughs) – we don't know, I guess. Going back to that documentary with Hina Wankali you were talking about where she was mentoring that – young person Mm -hmm. like obviously that's a young person who will grow up and understand their gender in a way that they maybe didn't just then yeah but um there seems to be like two different experiences that they're both talked about within the context of being relevant to mahus Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah is one of those an example of it being a gender and one not you know like i just yeah yeah. i just don't think it's a very helpful way to yeah, yeah. And, like, we also see, like, in the example of Hino Onkalu, Hino Onkalu identifies as a woman and as Mahu. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not like all these people must be just one of these things. Yeah. Yeah, and people are going to have different ways of understanding, embodying different aspects or several aspects of various categories that we've talked about. I guess one of the one of the pitfalls of queer as fact is like a concept. The way we run it is that we talk about a lot of things which we've researched for a short period of time. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. We're always going to come up against things that we don't have a nuanced understanding of. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we can kind of do our best to bring nuance to not knowing. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's all we can hope for. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not a like to have a podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. not a lesser of two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing, but I think the fact that, like, we do bring our not knowing to, like, everything we talk about. And I think we just, we have to acknowledge that, yeah. like, we've researched all these things for a short period of time, and obviously other people have a much more nuanced understanding of them than we do. So, now that we've talked about gender a lot, let's return to the stones of Kapaimahu. So, after James Boyd wrote his article in 1907, we next hear of the stones in 1941. By this time, the site that Archibald Cleghorn had moved them to was on a property owned by his son Alexander Cleghorn. It hadn't become a memorial park as he'd hoped because the government said that it was too difficult to maintain and, you know, issues with costs and so forth. Oh, yes. Um, Government things. So it had been subdivided and the part which had Kapayamahu on it was owned by Alexander Claycorn. And Alexander planned to lease it to an entertainment company who wanted to build a bowling alley. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so... How, How will this affect the rocks? That is the question, yeah. So the stones would have to have been either moved or blasted out of the way to make space for this bowling alley. Why would we do the second option if they could be moved? Well, it's actually very hard for them to be moved. So Alexander offered them to the Bishop Museum, which was the local museum, and there was just kind of no way to transport them and get them into the museum and have somewhere to put them in the museum. How were they moved in the first place, actually, from... I don't know. Cause I can't believe I didn't think to ask that. I didn't write at the start. Yeah, nor did no, I. Because not when they were originally put there at the request of those four people. Yeah. But when, uh, when Archibald Snowed, moved them. Uh, Archibald. Name, yeah. <laughs> uh, moved them from the beach to be with the other rocks. How did he do it? I don't know because, like, they moved them in the – to jump forward a bit, in the 90s they moved them yet again and, like, they really struggled in the 90s to move them. Is it just a matter of a number of people? Like, if you can get 500 people who are willing to, like, gather around and lift these rocks? They used a crane in the 90s, but I know there was a problem where the crane they'd chosen turned out not to be strong enough to lift one of the rocks. And there comes a point at which technology of some kind has to be involved, just humans aren't sufficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, by technology, I, you know... I just mean anything that's not, let's push this stone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know how Archibald moved them. Yeah. I have a vague understanding from, like, other great mysteries about how people historically moved huge <laughs> stones that rollers were often used. Yeah, yeah. 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 Water to decrease friction. Yeah. And it really works. So well. Subs, like, yeah. moving it across. Like, to be clear, the Egyptians built the pyramids. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, obviously these stones were moved <laughs> in yeah. the first, like, these stones were moved in the 1600s to their first yeah, site. Yeah. Like, yeah. these stones can be moved. <laughs> yeah. It's just such a big shift from, like, the start of this story where those former who were like, we'd love it if you put a stone on the beach to commemorate us by. And the community was like, yeah, no worries. Let's do that. And like 400 years later being like, how do we do it? Yeah. How, how do we move this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, like not to say it wasn't a difficult task in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like, I, but it was something that was clearly, you know, possible enough that they asked for it. And it was done. Were these yeah. sort of, like, rocks in commemoration of a big thing, like a common thing? Did they do that? Yeah, there are, like, stones. Rocks are very important in Hawaiian culture, and there are a lot of stones that have, like, significance and meaning and are connected with a variety of historical or, like, traditional 
Okay. Oh, like events from our tradition, yeah. So but these they have more cause to move big rocks around. Yeah. Someone <laughs> in the 20th century and so have it down. Yeah, yeah, and like they came from a quarry, like they were quarrying this side oh, and moving yeah. rocks yeah. on this side yeah. outside of the fact that oh, they yeah, moved the these stones. Yeah, the quarry is you move rocks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are, these ones, are these ones unusually large rocks or are the other rocks around like Oahu also like – Five ton rocks or whatever they were. Uh, yeah, I think they're on a large rocks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Clear as facts, 2020. I think there are other large rocks. I think they're like big, but they're not like notably huge. Yeah. Yeah, so the entertainment company just kind of wanted to blast them out of the way or whatever. And they ran in, first of all, to legal problems because Archibald had stipulated in his will that they had to remain in a prominent place. So good job, Archibald. Does that implicitly also mean... Don't let them up. Uh, yeah. I think he specifically said be in a prominent place and not be defaced. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, okay. like, yes. Which includes being blown up. Which includes being blown up. Um, well, that's good that he did that. Yeah. There was also significant local backlash in the 1940s against that removal of their destruction. Good. And that comes to us mostly through newspaper articles and a lot of letters in the newspaper and so forth. So, one anonymous submission to the paper wrote a poem in defense of the stones. The Hawaiian Civic Club, which was founded by um, King Kalakaua's son, also mounted a protest with its president, Flora Hayes, who's a Kanakamali woman, saying that if Kapaima, who was destroyed, Hawaii will lose its color and we will be just another American community. So, have people been coming to these stones this whole time since they were put together? I believe so. Cool. Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, yeah. Do people still go there now to, like, leave flowers and things like yeah. his wife did? Yeah, 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 they do. There's now a group which, like, oversees them and looks after them and is also associated with the Aulapa'au, which is the traditional healing. Okay. So, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's still happening. So the developers of the bowling alley eventually gained approval to have the bowling alley built in such a way that the stones would be placed in a prominent spot within the bowling alley. Oh. <laughs> um, that would be so strange. But when the alley was built, the stones were sunk into the foundations and the bowling alley was built on top of them. Oh, Shame. So Shame. Yeah. So despite the protests and the reporting at the time and a lot of conversation about it in the newspapers, this episode in Kapaima, whose history is generally glossed over with later reporting – often simply stating that the stones were buried under a bowling alley with the implication that they'd been sort of forgotten about and lost and the people had just gone, oh, yeah, these rocks, we're building a bowling alley here now, which is not the case at all. Like, there yeah. was public protest and the developers decided to do it anyway, do it anyway like, against the planning permits that they had. Yeah. People are really determined to pretend that people were not constantly aware of these stones. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's definitely something you see throughout their history, and we've already talked about it in 1905 when Archibald discovered them, that, like, people really want to view them as this kind of ancient relic, this mysterious thing, this thing that's been forgotten and rediscovered, rather than just these stones that have been continually part of a tradition with its importance recognised for the entire yeah. yeah. It's interesting to note that although there are many newspaper articles about Kapaima who in this time in the 1940s, only one of them that I read refers to the Mahu gender of the healers and describes them just as James Boyd did, as unsexed by nature. The others often quote James Boyd or use language that is obviously yeah. evocative and pulled from his writing, but generally don't talk about their sex or gender. I'm not sure why this is. It could be that most of these articles are quite short and that was just considered like too complicated a thing to just chuck into your small newspaper article. 
It's also possible that the association of Kapai Mahu with Mahu gender may have been seen as potentially damaging to this fight for the preservation of Kapai Mahu. Yeah, yeah. So are these newspaper articles you're referring to all from Hawaii? Or- yeah, yeah. From various Hawaiian newspapers, yeah. So, yeah, it won't surprise you to learn, and I've also kind of mentioned it already, that um, under Western influence, and specifically with the influence of American Protestant missionaries who were arriving in Hawaii from the early 1800s, Mahu became an increasingly stigmatized role, one increasingly associated with homosexuality, which was obviously not acceptable to American Protestant missionaries. So, by the 1940s, it may have been that that was something you just didn't want to bring into your argument for the preservation of a site. So for what it's worth, sexuality is not a defining trait of Mahu identity. Rayleigh Watts, who wrote a chapter in a book called Oceanic Homosexualities, but about whom I have no other information, so like, I don't know what his credentials are. Who is this guy? Do you know his gender? Is Rayleigh a man's name? I assumed it was, but maybe it's not. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, Rayleigh Watts suggests that Mahu would most accurately be called heterosexual because they're aware of both male-Mahu relationships and female-Mahu relationships, but no Mahu-Mahu relationships. Oh, I mean, I like, I guess. Yeah, like, it was, it Technically. was a, a weird way to word it. Yeah. But I also guess if Mahu is a less common gender, which I don't know for certain, to be honest, that's maybe just random and statistical. Yeah, yeah but also, like... There are less trans people than there are cis people, but trans people date each other all over the place, so... Levi, who I've mentioned to you as an anthropologist who did fieldwork in Tahiti and Hawaii, found that older Kanaka Maori people who he asked were more likely to say that Mahu just didn't have sex at all. Okay. While younger men that he talked to were more likely to talk openly about Mahu having relationships with men. I don't know what caused this difference. It may be that the increasing Western influence had led these young men to associate gender nonconformity with homosexuality or with same-sex relationships, I guess. Or it may be that they were younger people were more willing to talk to Levi openly about sex than older people were, or you it just could be anything. Yeah. I just don't know. But Levi did note that difference in the people he talked to. For what it's worth, historically, Kanaka Maoli culture did have words to talk about separate concepts of gender and sexuality, which, um, as we know from everything on this podcast, like Western culture is really bad at differentiating. <laughs> the Hawaiian language has the word aikane, which was used to describe a man's male lover. It can be used in a wide variety of contexts, so it can just kind of mean lover generally. But um, in this context, it particularly referred to a younger man who was the lover of an older man of higher status. Okay. And unlike Mahu, Ikane performed traditionally masculine gender roles. They're seen as men. They're just young men having sex with men. Yeah, they're just young men having sex with men. Yeah. yeah. Ironically, in the eyes of Westerners in Hawaii and under the increasing influence of Western culture, Mahu, because they were gender non-conforming, became increasingly associated with homosexuality, while Aikane, who conformed to Western ideas of masculinity, became increasingly desexualized and just seen as kind of a close friendship or a kind of surrogate brother category. So is that still around? Aikane? Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. Okay but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, moving back to the bowling alley. Oh, yes. Where the the rocks have been. The berries, correct. So the bowling alley was demolished in 1958, and Kapaya Mahu were once again uncovered, and they were moved to a site on Waikiki Beach. Were they damaged at all? Not that I'm aware of. Mm. How were they moved? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) 
Me alone. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Mary Kawanapakui, who I've mentioned a few times, along with the mayor and a few other kind of, you know, important people, participated in a ceremony to dedicate Kapaimahu, and a plaque was put there to explain their importance in Kanaka Maoli culture. The plaque itself, along with general reporting at the time, echoed much of the language we saw in James Boyd's writing, so it referred to the healers as wizards and soothsayers. The stones were referred to as the wizard stones of Kapayamahu. Once again, as we generally saw in the 1940s, however, there was no mention of the Mahu gender. This is the 60s. Okay. Early, late 50s, early 60s. In 1980, uh, the stones were moved yet again, this time to make way for the construction of a public bathroom. Oh, why couldn't you just move the public bathroom, like, three doors down, you know? Like, I why don't there? Know. I don't know. Um, and unsurprisingly, there was public backlash yeah. when this happened. Though I guess at that point, that wasn't the original place of the stones in the first That's place. That's true. Yeah, they're no longer in there. They haven't been in their original site, site. since 1905. It does still feel disrespectful to move them yeah. for that purpose, though. Also, yeah. at this point, I'm willing to believe it's easier to make a bathroom than move all these rocks. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like, you're absolutely right. And people at the time did talk about how it was disrespectful to move these sacred rocks for, for a bathroom. bathroom. So there's more writing in the 1980s because of this public backlash, and it does give us a bit of an idea of how people were talking about Kapaimahu and specifically the gender of the healers at the time. So a Kanakamali man named James Ginger, for example, who was writing in 1980, describes how his family in the USA would ask him to visit and touch the stones to hasten their next visit home. And James Ginger refers to Kapaimahu as representing, quote, four holy men. In contrast, a woman named Leatrice Bellisteros, who is of Filipino and Japanese descent, who lived in Hawaii and described herself as a medium of the Hawaiian goddess Pele, she is quoted as saying that Kapaimahu and Kapuni, so two of the healers, were male, while Kahaloa and Kinohi, the other two, were female. I wonder how that came about. <laughs> I really don't know. I do not know where she pulled this from. And you do still see this sometimes in articles today, and she's the only source I've found of it. Somewhere in there, it's just like someone was, what gender is a Mahu? I don't know. Let's split the difference. Half, half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Because Leatrice wasn't Kanaka Maoli herself, some Kanaka Maoli people reject her claims of a connection to the goddess Pele and kind of her claims of an understanding of and connection to Kanaka Maoli culture. Yeah. But others believe that, you know, that connection is valid regardless of your ethnicity, if that's what she believes in and if she has that connection, then it's valid. Either way, I do think we're seeing two examples here with Leatrice Bellastaris and James Jinder of Kapayama who are being fitted into the Western understandings of gender that have been brought to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. In 1994, Kanaka Maoli historian and activist George Kanahele wrote a report titled Restoring the Hawaiianness to Hawaii. Oh, he are they going home? Are they going to go back to their place? They didn't go back to their original oh. place, no. Oh. <laughs> I'm afraid not. They're still all together in one place on Waikiki Beach rather than being in the two separate locations that they were in. Do we know where the other location was now? I don't think we do. We have, we have descriptions from Archibald... And also, I think, either from one of his sons or his son-in-law that sort of talks about, oh, this river used to run through here and they were kind of next to this river here. So, like, we could try and reconstruct it based on these verbal descriptions, but we don't have, you know, it's here on the map. Is there any call to separate them or...? Not that I'm aware of, no. Because it might be that people have sort of got used to them being together and that's become, like... Yeah. Yeah. And it might also... Feel weird to separate them to like 
the current people do. Yeah. Waikiki is like a very touristy spot, like a very developed spot. So it might be that like you can't restore them to their original location because there's like a hotel there or something. Yeah. So they were like in the sea. Um, Yeah. So two of them were in the spot where they like to bathe and two of them were further up on the land. I mean, there's also the fact that coastlines move. So yeah. Yeah. So uh, George Kanahele formulated a proposal for a new dedication and enshrining of Kapaimahu, which went ahead in 1997 through the joint efforts of himself, Kanaka Māori elder Richard Puglinawan, master practitioner of La'au Lapa'au, Papa Henry Awe, and Manu Boyd, who is James Boyd's great-grandson. The restoration was carefully planned in line with traditional Kanaka Māori practices. The stones were placed on a raised stone platform constructed by an expert in Kanaka Māori drywall construction, and they were surrounded by four plants with medicinal value in Lao Lapa'au. A delegation from Tahiti also took part in the dedication ceremony and they gifted a small stone called Ta'ahuea which uh, means life and which now sits with Kapayamahu. What's a small stone in this country? I don't know. Is it like a one ton stone? (laughs) It's just one ton. Just fine. It weighs as much as a car. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea how big that stone is I'm afraid. It's not clearly in the photos I've seen but like I haven't seen any particularly good photos of Kapayamahu, so I don't know. I hope one day an extremely wealthy Queer Back listener gets to go on, like, a world tour of places that we mentioned. <laughs> that would be cool, and they just send us home photos. Yeah. I like how your fantasy is someone else goes to these places, not like they give us a bunch of money. And they I, d- I didn't imagine being that wealthy. So the stones were also given a new plaque and recognized by their current name. So instead of the wizard stones of Kapayamahu, it's now Napohaku Ola o Kapayamahu Amekapuni. And they're now cared for by a group called Nahomana La'au Lapa'au o Papa'aue, which is in line with the Hawaiian understanding of what's called malama, which is the idea that sacred sites have to actively be taken care of and looked after. I mean, true. Yeah. Um, does the park say anything different about... Not really. The plot kind of has updated language in terms of not saying things like wizard and soothsayer, so I think it says healer instead, but still doesn't talk about their Mahu gender. Does it gender them at all, or does it just say like some people? It says four powerful Tahitian healers. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, at least it's not like. He yeah, I don't. I don't think it does gender them. No. Saying yeah. Some men or two men and two women. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. For what it's worth, the fact that the plaque now doesn't mention gender, I don't think is an accident. George Kanahele describes the four healers very specifically as men and goes out of his way to deny any suggestions of queerness. So he claims that Kapayama, who translates as to set aside homosexual desire, what? Okay. Which are. According to everything else I've read, it's just not how Hawaiian language works and not correct. Okay. Bold. <laughs> yeah. So Mary Kawena Pukui translates Kapayamahu as row of Mahu. So Different. just just like a row of Mahu. Just like a row of Mahu. There were four stones kind of in a line. They four were Mahu, all Mahu. Yeah. <laughs> it's a row of Mahu. So uh, I would love him to be asked to break that down grammatically. Like, which yeah. bit means what? Yeah, like <laughs> you can I find like? out what we know what Hawaiian language is like. Right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's not like, dead. People yeah. speak Hawaiian still today. I mean, yeah. So he's translating Mahu as homosexual desire, yeah, which is obviously building on that more recent Western influence understanding of Mahu as being homosexual. But like, those of homosexual <laughs> desire is not... <laughs> I don't exactly know how he's breaking down the kapaya part, but Mary Kona Pakui says that ka is the article, paya is ro, and mahu is mahu. <laughs> okay. So, um, 
Like, there could be some ambiguity. I don't understand going on here, to be fair, but I'm skeptical. Yeah, same. <laughs> I'm skeptical and I haven't read anyone who's like, oh, yeah, George had a kind of legit translation, but given the understandings of the culture we have, it doesn't seem correct. George hasn't stumbled on an accidental pun he's exploiting. No, no. Like, w- what I read said this isn't even how Hawaiian grammar works. Like, that just couldn't Why would that. he even do that, though, about, like, at a live language? What is he doing? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a bit more about him. Um, George kind of has been critiqued for his focus on tourism in his advocacy for Hawaiian culture. So yeah. his efforts to kind of tweak Hawaiian culture or present Hawaiian culture in ways that will be palatable to Western tourists. Yeah, yeah. Why would that be like the name of the rocks anyway, even if that was what it meant? So his, his, What's the history of them that he's suggesting? His claim is that they had to set aside any sexual thoughts in order to be able to practice la'au, la'pa'au. Um, why it's specifically homosexual, but then he like, has not explained. So get four rocks about it, though? <laughs> <laughs> So I think he believes that the four rocks do still represent these four healers oh, and so forth. It's just that... It, like those four healers were just like, hey, we've decided not to be gay anymore. Please get us four rocks. And the people were like, absolutely. <laughs> Is that the... I mean, I think Or he, just that he thought that he thinks that setting aside sexual desire is part of being a healer. Yeah, I think he sees the story as like pretty much exactly the same, except that the healers, rather than being characterized by being mahu gender, were characterized by the fact that they set aside sexual desire in order to heal. So to him, the healers are characterized by being celibate gay men. <laughs> <laughs> like what? <laughs> I guess so. I guess that will be much more palatable to Western tourists. Yeah. Like someone asked him a question once at like a public gathering and he panicked and said this and I was just like, yeah, that's it forever. I don't know. If you're going to tell a blatant lie, why not just pretend that Mahu means healer in the yeah, first place? Say, yeah, hurt. just take the gender angle out well, of it. So Mahu, like in modern Hawaii, Mahu has come to be specifically like a derogatory term for oh, no. uh, any queer people, basically. Like specifically gay men, but like also just any queer people. Yeah. So, I mean, like that context was already present, so he couldn't really just be like... Mahu meant healer because, like, everyone knows that Mahu is a word with, like, weird connotations. Yeah, like, everyone, I mean, not everyone, but, like, a lot of people in Hawaii speak Hawaiian, George. (laughs) What are you doing? Um, Just George. Just a derogatory term, isn't it? Like, people self identify. Yeah, yeah, people also self identify with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, Hinamonkalu identifies as Mahu, and, like, yeah, like, people are definitely reclaiming it but like but people were it's also, also broadly aware of the word as like a derogatory term. yeah like Hina Wonkalu like in interviews I've watched with her she talks about how as a kid she was called like she says you know I was called all these different names and she pulled up all these different like slurs which we'd recognize and she also says you know and I was called Mahu and I didn't know what that meant but I knew that it was bad and that it was like you know something yeah. that was said to me as a kid because I was more effeminate and okay. then she talks about how later on like that word stuck with her and she started to actually like Learn the history, Learn the of, history it. of it and see that as her identity. Yeah, on that note that we've kind of moved on to talking about anyway, I did want to end just briefly by talking about Mahu in modern Hawaiian society. Kapai and Mahu are in the site they were put in in 1997 with the plaque they were given in 1997. That's kind of where that story is at the moment. Talking about Mahu more broadly, as I mentioned, Mahu came to be seen as a derogatory term for gay men and a derogatory term for queer people more generally. So because of these derogatory connotations, other words have come to be used for people who were assigned male at birth, but identify either as women or as being neither male or female or between male and female. So the newer word mahuahine is common, which translates as mahu woman. 
Oh, okay. And that's kind of seen as being more directly analogous to our term trans woman. Yeah, and people do also use other English words such as trans woman and also queen. Linda Ikeda Vogel, who collected stories from people who identified as Mahu, Mahuahine, or trans women in 2008, found that most saw their gender not as a transition from male to female, but as a shift from male to a place in between the two genders. So kind of more in line with what we talked about earlier on about understandings of Mahu. Yeah. Some Kanakamali people, as I've said, are also reclaiming Mahu, with Hina Wonkali being a prominent example, but far from the only example. There just happens to be a documentary about her, so I know a lot about her. And Hina Wonkalu not only is reclaiming the word Mahu, but she's also reclaiming Kapaya Mahu as a Mahu site. So she is the creator of a short film called Kapaya Mahu, which premiered this year. So unfortunately, I couldn't get my hands on it. It was kind of slated to show at a bunch of film festivals this year, which didn't happen. And it's it's around, but like you can't really watch it yet. That's a shame, yeah. But yeah, Hina Moncalo has worked on this film, which tells not only the story of Kapaya who, as it's more generally told now in Hawaii, but also brings back the um, conversation about the healer's Mahu gender and what that is and what that means and why that is important to Kanakamali culture. Obviously, these rocks are still there today. Yep. How is it respectful for people to interact with them if they're a sacred site? They're surrounded by a fence now. Mm -hmm. Uh, People leave layers on the fence, so, you know, those chains of flowers. Yep. That's my main way that I'm aware that people, you know, like interact with them in just like, you know, a small, simple way. Um, There is also that group which does take care of them. Yeah. And obviously, they would have more complex ways that they interact with them that would be connected with the ao lapa ao, but I don't know exactly what they are. But it's perfectly right for like a non-Hawaiian visitor to just go and like look at them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like obviously I'm not suggesting anyone like climbs all over them. Yeah, just, but you could just go to the site and... Yeah, you can just go to the site and look at them and read the plaque and... Okay. Yeah. So with that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find all the rest of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and also on our website, QueerAsBack.com. If you do find us on Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave us a review because that really helps us to reach a wider audience. And also, we love reading your reviews out on this podcast. It's my favorite part. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts of recording. And Eli's about to read one out now. So, our, our dinner's just arrived, so I will read you a very short review. <laughs> Um, it's from Eleni, who is from America, and it is five stars, and the title is Absolutely Stunning. Oh. And uh, very briefly, because they know we're hungry. <laughs> Eleni says, as a young lesbian eager to learn more about my history, this podcast has been a godsend. Oh, thank you, Eleni. Thanks, Eleni. I'm glad to hear that. If you want to find us on other platforms, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. You can also contact us directly through email at queerasfact at gmail.com, or you can write to us in the post a physical letter, and you can find our address for that on our website. If you want to support us financially, you can buy our merch on Redbubble, or you can sign up to our Patreon. And that gives you a chance to vote on the topics of upcoming episodes and also get some free merch. If you want to find a list of the sources that I used for this episode, that will be available on our website as well. I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem clan of the Bunwarang and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>